Hello, I'm Olivia Enos, Senior Policy Analyst in the Asian Studies Center at the Heritage Foundation, and I'm pleased to bring you our seventh and final episode of season two for China Uncovered. As you all know, China Uncovered is part of our broader China Transparency Project, and this project and the series of podcasts are really pushing for greater data-heavy transparency for the Chinese Communist Party, and we're doing so by highlighting the work of our friends, including today, our own Heritage Foundation, Josh Maservi. So for this episode, we're going to be giving our listeners a sneak peek into the Heritage Foundation's China in Africa database. In the 2021 China Transparency Report, we found that China has not only ramped up its overseas activities, but these activities have often had direct impacts on other types of engagements. Um, I think this is especially true in Africa, where China has often used economic inducements to impact the way that countries in Africa are voting, for example, at the United Nations. So I think for this and for just a lot of other reasons, it's super important for us to have a comprehensive understanding of China's engagements in Africa. Um, And so I'm delighted that today um, I'm bringing in our guest and, as I mentioned, my colleague, Joshua Maservi. Um, Josh and I actually go way back. I'm lucky to call him a colleague and um, to have had the opportunity to work with him on another area of his expertise, which is um, on the U.S. refugee program. Um, He's a wealth of knowledge on that subject as well. Um, But he also commends himself because he recommended one of my most favorite books that I've ever read called When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanity. So I highly recommend this book um, to everyone, but just some fun uh, background and anecdotes. So to say that I'm excited to have him on the podcast is definitely an understatement. Um, But now to the actual task at hand, I'm going to give Josh a more formal introduction. Josh is the uh, senior policy analyst for Africa and the Middle East here at Harris. Um, He studies African geopolitics, counterterrorism, and, as I mentioned, refugee policy. Josh is a returned Peace Corps volunteer who served in Zambia and extended his service there to work for the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. He has also worked for Church World Service in Kenya, U.S. Army Special Operations Commands, and the Atlantic Council prior to joining us here at Heritage. Um, He holds a Master's of Arts in Law and Diplomacy from the Fletcher School at Tufts University and an undergraduate degree in history from Templeton Honors College at Eastern University. Josh, along with our colleague Justin Ree, managed the China and Africa database that we're going to be talking about today. So, Josh, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Olivia. It's it's great to be with you here on the podcast. Thank you for that very kind introduction. <laughs> I'm, I'm thrilled that you, you love that book so much. I thought it was tremendous. I'll echo uh, your recommendation of it. I think everybody should read it. Uh, it really is is that good. Yeah, we we can't be all China all day. So that book is uh, (laughs) a a good break, hopefully, in everybody's uh, planned Christmas reading, maybe. (laughs) Or perhaps we should warn them. It is fairly um, emotionally intense. A little heartbreaking. (laughs) Yeah, it's a bit heartbreaking. Uh, So maybe after the holidays, I'm not sure exactly when it would be appropriate, but uh, do do read it at some point, but be warned that uh, you may shed a a few tears. (laughs) That's a good PSA. All right. So now just to, to kind of kick things off, can you share a little bit about your work at Heritage and also just a little bit about why Heritage is concerned with um, China's activities in Africa? 
Sure, uh, happy to. So in, in your introductory remarks there, you hit on some of the major topics that I track uh, on, on the continent. Um, you mentioned the geopolitics. I do a lot of um, sort of broader political issues, uh, especially including the activities of outside actors in Africa, uh, China, of course, uh, being being uh, the big the big one. But there there are many other uh, foreign countries that are very very active on the continent, including American competitors like Russia, Iran, Turkey, who is sort of a frenemy maybe. Uh, and then we have a lot of allies who are very active there as well. Uh, the UAE, the Saudis, uh, France, Japan, I could go on and on. So I, I track some of that. Uh, I do uh, look at the terrorism issues, which unfortunately um, show no sign of, of going away anytime soon. In fact, they're escalating on the continent. So I, I look at those issues pretty closely. Uh, and then yes, I, I track refugee matters just because of my my personal experience in, in that field when I uh, lived and worked in Kenya. And then crisis du jour, uh, it often <laughs> uh, takes up some of, my, some of my days as well. So why Heritage is so concerned with Chinese government activity in Africa? I think it because, it's because Africa matters. Um, and that's maybe trite to say, but it's it, uh, maybe a better way to say it is that it, it matters more than most people realize. Let me say that. Uh, it matters to the United States more than most people realize. Africa is well known as a source of, of natural resources, right? It has about 30% of the world's mineral reserves, has the world's largest reserves of seven key minerals and significant deposits of many others. But there's there's a couple critical minerals uh, like cobalt, for instance, that uh, Africa is by far the largest uh, producer of. And cobalt is, of course, critical to lithium ion batteries, which are critical to uh, electric vehicles and autonomous vehicles and other things like that. So a sort of a mineral that is already critical and is only going to become more important um, so you have the natural resources side, just the simple fact that Africa is, has a huge population that's growing very, very rapidly. The number I always like to, to give is that in about, uh, 13 or 14 years from now, um, Africa's working age population is going to be larger than China's or India's. It'll be over a billion people uh, by 2100, a third of the world's population will be African. So, you know, you have to just, you have to deal with, with uh, any region that has that much of a population, especially a young population. You're gonna have to think through uh, how does the U.S. engage uh, productively there. there. There's a lot of other things I could say, but maybe for the purposes of this podcast, I'll, I'll talk, uh, the, my last point here on, on why Africa matters to the U.S. is, is uh, on the international diplomatic stage. And uh, hopefully we can get into this a little bit more um, throughout the podcast, but Africa is the largest voting bloc in international forums, and, and frequently they vote together. Not all the time, but but often. That matters in the context of of China because these African countries are perhaps the staunchest um, allies that China has on the international stage. So on issues of Xinjiang, for instance, um, African, many African countries will sign on to letters that are supportive of China's policies in Xinjiang and, 
and the genocide there that is unfolding Ow. against the Uyghurs. Yeah, it's, it's really discouraging, frankly. Uh, the same thing on Hong Kong. They will, many African countries will, will sign on to um, these letters that are supportive of China's position on Hong Kong, on the South China Sea. Uh, they vote for um, one of the most recent and best examples is they they provided about 30 of 79 yes votes on this Russia and China backed uh, UN cybercrime resolution that was opposed by US and um, by the US and many European countries. So, you know, when the US wants to accomplish something on the international stage that contravenes what China is trying to do, Africa's a problem for us, just to put it very bluntly. Um, and uh, that's something that the US has to be much better about thinking through and, and working on. Yeah, I think that was incredibly helpful context because you're right, Josh, I feel like Africa does frequently get overlooked as an important mm. strategic player on the international stage. And um, you really just outlined very clearly several reasons why, you know, the U.S. government should care and, and why policymakers should care about what's going on there. But man, that is so concerning over Xinjiang and Hong Kong and mm -hmm. and Tibet and other, other things. I didn't realize that that was happening. But okay, so for today's episode, obviously, we're going to be focused on the China in Africa database. Um, mm -hmm. Can you just share with us a broad overview of this project? Um, you know, what is it track and, and maybe talk a little bit about the methodologies that you use to collect this data? Sure. Uh, so it's, it's very ambitious. Uh, <laughs> essentially, we are, if I had to boil it down to one sentence, uh, I would say that we are tracking every meaningful Chinese engagement with every African country from 1949 until the present. Uh, so it's, it's a, a vast database that we're compiling. We've, um, we have sort of four broad categories. And then uh, I, I counted all of this uh, before I came on here. We have 37 subcategories and then 19 sub subcategories. Uh, those range, uh, so the subcategories range in um, everywhere from, you know, senior Chinese officials visiting Africa or senior African officials visiting China to Chinese medical teams deployed to Africa, to cultural troop visits, uh, to port calls by uh, uh, PLA Navy vessels. So we're, we're genuinely trying to get as comprehensive a picture as we possibly can of as I say, meaningful uh, Chinese engagement on the continent. That involves a lot of judgment calls, of course, what is meaningful and um, all that. But but we think once we've got it together, it'll, it'll be an, an extraordinary and, and unprecedented resource. Uh, methodology, uh, we look at everything, um, anything and everything is, is generally how I describe it. So. There, we have certain sort of core sources, I would say, that, that we start with, depending on what we're researching. Um, we have some very powerful search engines like LexisNexis, for instance, um, that we use as a standard part of every time we're, we're diving into one of these categories or subcategories. Uh, we, we will do a LexisNexis Lexis search, for instance, um, on, on keywords and 
Um, that's the uh, that's really important because um, a lot of times some of these things that we're tracking would never make international news just because they're, you know, who cares about a uh, an administrative building that is built in Botswana, right? <laughs> for for a local township, right? It's not going to make international news, uh, but we want to know about it um, because if you know if, if the Chinese uh, if the contractor was was Chinese or if it was funded by the Chinese government in some way. Um, so Lexis, Lexis, Lexis will give us those local papers that, that might cover these issues. So uh, we try to be very methodical. Um, we, we have, as I say, this long list of sources that we will consult as a standard part of, of um, our research into any of these categories. Then we have certain sources that are specific to what we're researching. Uh, trade publications are really, really useful, actually. So when I'm looking at hydropower projects or uh, Chinese investment in mining in Africa, uh, there's literally a mining.com or um, that um, I receive a newsletter from. I, I get all these strange newsletters now. Um, <laughs> and uh, so trade publications, as I say, very helpful. And then Chinese uh, government websites, can be quite useful, particularly embassy um, websites in each country. Oftentimes they'll list a lot of, uh, not a comprehensive list of the engagements by any means, but some of the highlights that are a good starting point. That's really great. It sounds like this is definitely a labor of love because it's so detail oriented um, <laughs> and really helpful. So actually for our um, previous episode, episode six of this season, um, we spoke with some folks at the German Marshall Fund who run the um, authoritarian influence tracker. And it's pretty detail oriented. Um, but why do you think it's important that we track all these very specific categories of engagement in a single database, especially Especially when there are some of these other existing databases out there that do track some types of China's engagement in Africa. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. There's some really good databases out there that, that we have used to complement what we're doing. Uh, so William & Mary has a very good project, the A-Data project that I like a lot. And you mentioned um, the Authoritarian Influence Tracker and there's, there's some others. And they all take sort of bites at this. but. As I've been diving more and more into China and Africa, I had this growing unease about uh, conclusions I was drawing because I thought to myself, I, I think these conclusions are correct, but there's so much data that I don't have access to that mm. could potentially inform this conclusion that I'm trying to make. And I looked around the landscape of China and Africa studies and I said, everybody has this exact same problem. Now, if you're very specifically focused on something like loans, for instance, there is good data. Their organizations have gathered good data on Chinese loans in Africa. So you could feel pretty confident with uh, your source data and conclusions then that you could draw uh, from that. But it would be limited to questions around loans because there's so many types of engagement that if you really want a comprehensive picture, of what China is up to on the continent, then you have to think about, okay, diplomatic visits. You have to think about, yes, you know, the big ticket items, loans and infrastructure and everything else, but again, medical teams, right? Or uh, cultural troop visits or peace arc visits, which is like their floating hospital, because those all matter and they're all part of the relationship. And so I, I thought, okay, 
I don't have this resource. I, I can't find it anywhere. It doesn't exist. So let's create that resource. Uh, so I, I can have more confidence in some of the conclusions I'm drawing about China and Africa, and I can have a better sense of what truly is going on with Chinese engagement on the continent. Yeah, that's really great. It sounds like you saw a problem and were like, ah, let's step in and, and fill in that void. I think that's how a lot of really great research is done. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, obviously, this is still a work in progress. But so far, which countries are receiving the most engagements from China? And why do you think these countries are receiving more attention? Like, is it because they're more willing to accept Chinese aid and investment? Or is it because these countries are more attractive markets for China? Or is some some completely different reason for, for why we see those trends? It's, it's a really diverse landscape when you look across all these different forms of engagement and which countries uh, receive Chinese attention. Um, so for, you know, I mentioned loans, right? Loans are very heavily clustered among a pretty small handful of, of African countries that, that get the great majority of, of Chinese loans. So Angola leads the pack by a long ways. Angola is, uh, has a lot of oil. So that was, you know, I, I think it's sort of a pragmatic decision by the Chinese government that we want a really close relationship with this important oil producing country. Although interestingly, Nigeria, which is actually the largest oil producer on the continent, doesn't get as many loans. But then you have Ethiopia, another major recipient rather of, of Chinese loans that doesn't have much in the way of natural resources, but they're still an important country strategically for other reasons. Zambia gets a lot of loans. They're a big copper producer. Uh, so there's, you know, you can extrapolate a few trends there um, as, as to why China might uh, focus or, or cluster its, its loan engagement with certain countries. But then you see, um, for instance, I've, I've mentioned medical teams uh, a couple times. Uh, those uh, do not track with, with loan engagements, right? Those are, are much more diffuse. There's many African countries have received uh, Chinese medical teams, unsurprisingly, countries that have a, a longer relationship, a longer close relationship with China have received the most teams, right? So Tanzania, um, starting in 1964, <laughs> started getting uh, medical teams, and I, they've had 53, and that comprised around 2,000 personnel. Uh, Algeria, they started getting teams in 1963. Um, they had 23 teams total so far, and that's about 3,000 personnel. So obviously the longevity of the relationship affects some of this. Um, but it's uh, this is something that we're really interested in, in diving into in, in more detail once we get all this data together, because I think there's going to be so many interesting uh, relationships and, and causalities and correlations that we can tease out of that and try to figure out, okay, what is meaningful here, right? Like, like what, um, what factors actually do influence Chinese engagement on the continent? Mm. Yeah, that's really helpful. Um, I know that your data also looks into, um, you know, Chinese diplomatic visits to Africa and uh, as well as African diplomatic visits to China. Um, why is it important for us to, to track these? This is one of the most interesting 
to me, engagements that we've been tracking. And we're still building this data set. Some of these individual data sets could on their own be, you know, an entire project uh, <laughs> because they're so massive. And this is one of them. Uh, we have over, we've charted over 1,100 visits so far. Wow, um, really? Yeah, and we are not, and that's just for Chinese visits to Africa. And it doesn't have a lot of the historical visits yet. That's, it's mostly from like the mid 90s onwards. Mm -hmm. um, which is fascinating, right? That there have been so many, and these are high level, we're not talking you know, mid-level, these are high-level visits. Um, and I think it, you know, it boils down to the fact that relationships matter. Um, they matter to all countries, right? Um, but maybe particularly to China and to a lot of African countries where just being present and showing up is a big, big deal. And... You know, I bemoan, uh, you know, a lot of what China does on the continent as much as anybody, but I also give them credit, right, because they have invested immensely in their diplomatic relationships on the continent. I think that's negative for U.S. interests, but they're, they're being smart. And uh, I'll just give one example. Uh, for about the last 30 years, the very first overseas visit that the Chinese foreign minister makes every single year is to an African country. Um, President Xi Jinping, in his two terms, the first overseas visit that he made included African countries. Uh, so China really believes that these relationships are important, clearly. And there, there are some African heads of state who visited China seven, eight, nine, ten times uh, during their tenures. So this is very frequent, very high-level engagements, and we need to know about them if we, if we really want to understand again this China-Africa relationship. We need to see the the history of these engagements because it's it's hard to quantify exactly how those sorts of relationships affect, uh, you know, the, the, those personal relationships affect the broader relationship, of course, that's impossible probably to quantify, but it is meaningful. And if once we get all this data and we can look back at the last 50, 60, 70 years of diplomatic exchanges, we can start to have a better idea of where this relationship is headed, what it is now, um, and what that means for the United States. Yeah, I mean, it, it sounds like the U.S. is kind of behind the eight ball since China is placing such a high premium on its diplomatic relationships with Africa. I am somewhat curious, like, is there a way for the U.S. to even catch up with the level of engagement? And is that even something that U.S. policymakers are, are thinking about? Yeah, I, I don't think it's... Um... Well, no, I think, uh, is, is the short answer, right, <laughs> um, to the question. Uh, uh, just as an example, you know, President Trump didn't visit the continent once. Mm -hmm. President Biden has yet to visit the continent. It's still early stages, but, you know, he hasn't visited. There have been very few senior visits from the current administration to the continent. And that's in, now there, there are, 
sort of second tier visits that are pretty frequent, you know, special envoys go over there a lot, assistant secretary level people like that are over there fairly frequently, but those really high level premium visits, so to speak, are, we just are so, so far behind the Chinese on this that I, I'm not sure we would ever be able to match that level of diplomatic engagement, but it is something we have to be aware of that we are massively behind in this respect. Now, I, I do want to be cautious about my remarks because we're not behind everywhere in all mm. elements of, of this. And this is sort of a, a trope that popped up, uh, particularly during the last administration where, oh, you know, the U.S. is in retreat and we don't care about Africa and, and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I don't want to get on my soapbox here, but I talk about this all the time because it frustrates me. It's like, no, the U.S. Uh, has been very consistently engaged with the continent for decades. And we have very impactful programs that are, like uh, the president's emergency plan for AIDS relief, PEPFAR, came about during George W. Bush's administration. That literally saved millions of Afghan lives. Mm -hmm. uh, the Millennium Challenge Corporation, Feed the Future, Power Africa, uh, so these things have always continued, you know, we've had embassies all across the continent, et cetera, et cetera. So I don't want to overstate the, you know, the situation of the U.S. on the continent. But it is true on this relationships issue, we are way behind and we just, we don't get the, it seems like we either don't get the importance of those sorts of, of visits and building those sorts of relationships or we don't prioritize Africa enough to make those sorts of trips and visits. Um, you know, I, I was a, as you mentioned, I was, you know, in your in your opening remarks, I was a Peace Corps volunteer, and even in that very limited, you know, scope of work uh, that I was doing, you just see how important it is for, um, in my case, Zambians, where where I was serving, um, for Americans just to be present and. I think that I think that is true of even at really senior diplomatic levels. Um, so this is, you know, an issue that the U.S. just has to be better about. Mm, yeah, that's important color and context, I think. Yeah. To add to our conversation. So thanks for dwelling on mm. on U.S. engagement in the in the region as well. Um, so we've been talking, you know, throughout the our entire conversation about um, some of the ways that China is influencing African voting at the UN, for example. Mm -hmm. Are there any other areas where you see this type of sort of relational coercion or impacts from Chinese investment on African nations and their behavior? Yeah, I think um, there's no doubt that China you know, on certain what they consider core issues, right, which is a list that keeps expanding, uh, <laughs> right? um, they will absolutely bully and coerce African countries, um, you know, despite all the high-flying rhetoric about win-win cooperation and non-interference, et cetera, they will not hesitate to break out the club. Uh, a couple examples I always give is, um, you know, Namibia had uh, some years ago had invited the Dalai Lama to to visit the country. The, the Namibian president had, and uh, the Chinese embassy went nuclear in a a interview uh, after the facts. The Namibian president 
was very open about the threats that uh, he received personally uh, from the Chinese embassy, how they were going to isolate Namibia in the region. They were going to basically rally all the regional countries to cut it off and, and ex all these things. Um, so much the so much so that the Namibian president at the time during this interview said that he told the Chinese ambassador that we're not your we're not a colony of, of China. Um, so, you know, on, on these issues, they, they will break out, um, you know, coercion. They haven't had to do it much in Africa because African countries are generally really pliant um, as, as far as you know, what China wants. I've already mentioned how supportive they are of, of China on a lot of these international diplomatic issues. Uh, another example would be after the Tiananmen Square massacre, African countries were the ones to first rally to China uh, and to help it weather some of the international diplomatic isolation that it was suffering. Um, Blaise Compoare, who was, who was then president of Burkina Faso, was the first foreign head of state to visit China after the Tiananmen Square massacre. Um, so uh, this relationship is, is deep and old. And, and so a lot of African um, governments are very inclined to do what China wants on some of these hot button issues. So as I say, China doesn't very normally have to reach for the club and, and use coercion. It's absolutely happy to do so. I think the coercion that it uses against other countries in the world, uh, you know, if, if any of the, you know, we've seen it in Eastern Europe, for instance, or even Western Europe at times, um, Japan, you know, uh, has also suffered this. I, I think African countries notice what happens to those, to those other countries when they run afoul of the tender sensibilities of the Chinese Communist Party. And I think they, they take a lesson from it. Wow, the African country support after Tiananmen is just mm. very, very shocking, um, but mm -hmm. also a helpful reminder that it, China's influence in Africa is nothing new. We just weren't mm. always necessarily watching it very closely. Can you highlight some of the unique challenges that are at play when collecting data on China or the Chinese government's mm -hmm. activities? Um, do you think there are any challenges that are different from other forms of data collection? Mm -hmm. Yeah, one of the big ones is how opaque um, some of these transactions are, specifically around loans and, and, and contracts for construction or, um, you know, infrastructure con construction, for instance, it's really, really hard to get your hands on these loans, uh, including for African citizens, right, whose, whose taxpayer dollars are paying for these things. Uh, that's, that's by design. That's how Chinese companies and the Chinese government like to operate. Um, you know, they, they're, they're, they're an authoritarian system. So they, they think citizens exist to serve the government, not the other way around. And so why should, you know, citizens of, of any country uh, be given an insight into how the government is operating? I, I think that's sort of the general um, philosophical milieu that, that drives some of this. And unfortunately, there's a lot of authoritarian governments in Africa as well that have a somewhat similar perspective. The opacity also helps uh, disguise um, corruption, which, again, we, we all know 
uh, a lot of African countries really struggle with this. Some do quite well. Like there, there are some that, that do fairly well, but others, uh, many really struggle with corruption. And so, you know, if you're uh, undertaking these billion dollar projects behind a veil, that facilitates you uh, skimming off the top. So that, that's certainly a challenge. Uh, another challenge I'd say is that African media is, uh, there's, a, there's some really great newspapers and media houses on the continent, but uh, if you compare it to the United States, for instance, there's far fewer. Um, there's, there's not nearly the density of, of African media on the continent. So a lot of these um, issues that we're trying to track just never pop up in, in local media, and they certainly don't pop up in, in the international press either. Uh, so that's really a challenge. That's why I've, I'm looking at this bookshelf right now full of uh, books written in like, you know, the 50s and 60s uh, by various scholars looking at the China-Africa relationship. So whenever I find a book like that, I immediately buy it and mine it for anything because sometimes books that were written 40, 50 years ago might mention uh, some element of China-African engagement that wouldn't be commented upon today. So that, that's a challenge. Um, you know, we, we look at Chinese websites quite a lot and they can be really clunky and, and hard to navigate. Some of them, not all of them, but some are, um, you know, you, you'll save a link and then a day later you'll click on it and it's already dead sort of thing. So <laughs> that's, that's one of the challenges as well. Uh, I think the biggest challenge is just the sheer volume of data we're collecting. Uh, I mean, it, there, it feels almost infinite sometimes. Um, <laughs> and so you do have to be really disciplined and just chip away at it in a systematic way. Otherwise it can be really overwhelming. Yeah, well, you know, the trend that you were mentioning about um, like links being there one day and gone the next, we have heard that from so many people. Um, <laughs> I mean, interviewing sure, yeah. people who are covering a whole range of issues, um, you know, over the past two seasons of this podcast, and it is so common. And, mm -hmm. you know, I I can't help, but it's definitely not unintentional. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I've sort of concluded that as well. I think it's... <laughs> Uh, you know, I don't want to be too cynical, but it uh, it happens so frequently. I was like, man, this maybe this is a feature and not a bug. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I am curious as to whether or not you've received any reaction or responses from the Chinese government to Heritage's research and findings. I know the report is not out yet, but perhaps mm -hmm. on some of your other research areas. Yeah, so one of the projects I did that sort of launched this project was an examination of all the sensitive government buildings that Chinese companies have built in Africa. Um, I just meant that to be a one-off report. I thought it was a really interesting and totally unexplored, underexplored or unexplored area. Um, and then it, it sort of started me thinking more grandly about what we could achieve um, once I had put together that data set. Uh, so, so I did get that data set and I found 186 confirmed um, uh, sensitive government buildings that, that Chinese companies have, have built or, or the Chinese government and or the Chinese government has funded. Uh, there's many more. Even since that report came out, I found others. I bet the real number is in the 300s. I wouldn't be surprised. Mm -hmm. 
but just because of these challenges we were just talking about, you know, it's really hard to, to tease out this data. Um, but these were everything from, I mean, there, there are presidential residences and ministries of foreign affairs and parliament buildings. I mean, these are really sensitive government installations that Chinese um, companies are building. And Chinese companies built the African Union headquarters, which famously uh, turned out to be riddled with microphones and the walls and the Huawei provided ICT system was uploading all of its data to Shanghai every morning. Uh, so my thesis was that probably at least some of these other government buildings that I found were also being similarly compromised um, by Chinese surveillance. Uh, I released that report then um, during the uh, weekly press conference that the um, Chinese spokesman for the Ministry of Affairs holds. He was given, um, he was he was asked a question by a, a Chinese journalist. I put that in air quotes because these are all, um, you know, government functionaries essentially, uh, or or rather, they're, um, you know, it's it's all very stage managed, right? Like no one's asking any uh, <laughs> unexpected or hard hitting questions. Uh, so this was this was obviously a pre planned question, and um, and the question was about the report, and uh, you know, sort of predictably. Um, you know, the, the spokesman attacked the report and uh, said some uh, unflattering things about, you know, about heritage and about me and, um, <laughs> you know, uh, wow. how I'd, yeah, how I'd clowned myself, essentially. Um, but I, I really took that as a great encouragement. Um, yeah, that's a badge of honor. <laughs> yeah, well, because and it, and it sort of signaled to me that, wow, this they really don't want this sort of information out there. And, and why is that? And that means I should really keep going here because, you know, there's, there's reports written about China and negative reports written about China out of the U S every week, basically. Um, and, and, you know, the ministry of foreign affairs doesn't bother to, to attack most of them. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure they've attacked others, but, um, but usually they just ignore them. So the fact that they actually w you know, were peeved enough about this to to challenge it. Uh, again, I, I took as sort of a signal that this was I should pursue this in in other areas. Yeah, that's excellent, and I I feel like um, that's actually a great segue into our next question because once this database is out, it seems like there will be real opportunities for additional research coming out of the data that you collect, not only for you to do, but perhaps for um, some of our listeners who, you know, many of whom are a part of the policymaking community, the think tank community, academia. Um, what aspects of China's engagement in Africa are under-researched or perhaps merit some additional attention? Ooh, uh, this would be a, a very long list, probably, <laughs> if, I, if I went through it all. Um, I would... Uh, yeah, I would, I would, I just mentioned, right, like surveillance um, and, and the potential of, of Chinese surveillance. I think it's an almost, almost sure thing. It's very hard to get uh, proof of these sorts of things because by design they're disguised uh, and I can't go to a Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Africa and start sweeping its walls for, <laughs> for microphones, right? Um, so <laughs> it's hard to get the real smoking gun evidence, but I, I do think that uh, their surveillance piece is really, really interested and, and very few people are, are looking at it or writing about it. Uh, the other one I would say is, is related, but data mining on the continent, I think, is a fascinating 
uh, area of inquiry that should be getting a lot more attention. I think it's very likely, and I've, I've written an essay about this, it's, it's very likely that uh, the Chinese government is, is, you know, benefiting from data that Chinese companies are collecting on the continent. Um, we know that some of the very same companies that are involved in creating the ex extraordinary surveillance uh, system that exists in Xinjiang today are also active in Africa. And they, um, including some that work on artificial intelligence and facial recognition, things of that nature. Uh, so I think it's very possible that uh, the information that they're gathering on the continent uh, is refining their artificial intelligence capabilities because the way that you improve AI is by basically pouring as much data as you possibly can into it, but also diversity of data is important. So it can learn, right? Like it, it can learn from these differences that it sees. And uh, Africa is a great source of very different facial data, genomic data than what the Chinese government can collect in China itself. So I think it's very possible that a lot of this data that's being, uh, is almost certainly being collected is being used, as I say, to refine um, uh, Chinese companies and the Chinese government's artificial intelligence capabilities, which then are being used in places like Xinjiang. You know, you could extrapolate this out even further and say that uh, because of the diversity of, of genomic data, for instance, that China can gather in Africa, it can help their AI distinguish um, non-Han faces better, right? Because so much of the data that China can gather uh, in China is Han, is ethnically Han. Um, they do have some minorities, uh, like the Uyghurs, for instance, but not that many. So, you know, part, the, this data might be uh, that they're gathering in, in Africa might be really useful for detecting minorities in China, for instance, if, if indeed they can use the data to um, refine their AI. Uh, and there's many other, obviously, applications of, of artificial intelligence um, in the military sphere, in the economic sphere, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that is is a really underexplored area. Um, and I hope that other people, uh, there are a few, few people looking at it a little bit, but I hope more um, dive in there. Yeah, I mean, that last point that you were making about how they're using private data, data of private citizens mm -hmm. in Africa to refine the use of their technologies, especially on people with darker skin tones, is horrifying. Mm -hmm. I remember reading a report about that for my own work on Xinjiang um, and, and China's, you know, blatant persecution of the Uyghurs, that this was a part of their work. And yeah. it's just they're not only, you know, exporting the way that they're using that surveillance technology abroad, but they're then violating um, citizens of other countries' mm -hmm. <laughs> rights um, in, in doing so. It's just really horrifying. So, yeah, I'm glad that you, you raised that point. Yeah, and I should, I should you know, clarify by saying I, I, don't, I don't have proof that this is exactly what's happening, right? But when yeah. you sort of look at all of the evidence and you, you consider the nature of the Chinese regime and how they operate, how we know they operate in other spheres, then it starts to become a really compelling case, I think, that this is indeed what's happening. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
Well, Josh, I have one final question for you. Mm. Um, I'd love to hear from you what actions you would like to see in response to the findings of your reports. Obviously, this one is not yet out, but once it is out, um, how can policymakers really maximize the use of this data? <sighs> yeah, I think there's a ton of ways here. Uh, fundamentally, and I think this has been a theme of my comments, fundamentally, I think it'll help just by helping us better understand the actual contours and nature of this relationship between Beijing and these various African countries. That alone is a win from a policymaking perspective, because if you're trying to address a problem, which the U.S. is trying to do in the context of Chinese influence in Africa, you need to understand the nature of the problem as thoroughly as you can. So, Again, because we lack that sort of holistic picture of uh, Chinese engagement on the continent, that means our prognosis and our prescriptions for solving the problem are going to be very vulnerable to mistakes. Um, so as we can get a better picture and a better grasp and understanding of what's actually happening in this relationship, that should, just by having that data, as long as people look at it, that should have um, you know, a, a laudable effects in, in American policymaking uh, because we, we better understand the nature of the problem. That means we can make better policies for addressing it. Uh, so that's sort of the baseline for me. Something I've argued for a number of years now is that the U.S. needs to better focus its engagement in Africa with countries where we can actually make headway for our interests. There's, when you look around the continent, there are just certain countries where it's just not very useful or productive for the United States to engage with them because for, for a whole variety of reasons, we're spread too thin on the ground. The reality is that the U.S. is unlikely to ever um, commit a lot of resources to Africa relative to other regions we're involved in. I think that's true, at least for the foreseeable future. So we have to be really discerning about which countries have a sufficient capacity for good governance, say, so that we can productively work with them. Uh, this project comes into that in that it can help us discern which countries are less beholden to China or have, have a, a shallower relationship with Beijing that maybe we can um, make a little bit of progress uh, for our own interests. And then this will, you know, this will be opened up to other researchers. There's a whole bunch of interesting analyses that can be done uh, once the data is, is all together. You know, what, um, what is, uh, you know, does, does an African, for instance, something I've thought about is, um, and a, an analysis I want to do is when an African country gets onto the UN Human Rights Committee, does it receive more Chinese engagement of various kinds, um, or is there some sort of ramp up once it's, um, you know, announced that this particular African country will be getting onto the Human Rights Council? Um, you know, uh, what is the relationship between achieving, um, you know, BRI status, for instance, and benefits? So does does signing on to BRI for an African country actually result in increased trade or FDI or diplomatic visits or construction activity or cooperation agreements or whatever? So really, we're just, you know, fundamentally, which types of Chinese engagement are the most meaningful 
and which Afghan actions will elicit Chinese engagement. Because um, there's a lot of noise out there, there's a lot of things that go on that um, are important, but maybe not critical to, um, to determining you know, how uh, China will, will act or how African countries uh, will act. So I think having that data set, opening it up to researchers, um, you know, the, the heritage team will be doing a lot of its own analyses. Uh, hopefully that we can tease out some of those really, really important elements. And that will just give us a better understanding, like I say, of the relationship, how the U.S. should respond and how we can predict um, where some of these relationships uh, might be going. Mm, well, thank you so much, Josh. Uh, I think you've really given us just a a broader understanding of how Africa fits into our policies um, towards China and fits into the policy landscape. Um, for our listeners, we'll be sure to link to um, the report that Josh um, referenced and, and some of the work that he's done so you can learn more about what he's doing. But um, thank you again, Josh, for, for joining us today. Today and also for giving us a sneak peek into this forthcoming database, which um, you know we hope our listeners will check out once it's once it's available. Do we know um, when it's going to be available? I know it'll be in 2022 sometime, but yeah, I expect it'll be later in the year 2022. Okay, uh, just again because of the scale of of what we're doing here, and it takes uh, pretty sophisticated database as well to manage all this um so it's it's you know a question of getting the data and then how do you you know the tools you need to manage it and present it in an accessible way so absolutely there's a lot to be done but we're we're uh, we're cranking away at it <laughs> well good luck with that and i know our listeners <laughs> we're all will all benefit from that for sure thank you to our listeners um if you've joined us through the entirety of season two we're just so grateful for your tuning in to this podcast as always uh, china uncovered is a part of our broader china transparency efforts where we are just seeking to peel back the layers on all of the CCP's bad activities um, that they're engaging in all across the globe. Please be sure to check out our China Transparency Report at our website, um, which of course there will be a link um, to the website and to the report in our show notes. And thank you once again for tuning in to China Uncovered. Um, We hope you enjoyed this second season and we look forward to hopefully a season three in fall 2022. Um, wishing you and yours just a, a happy Christmas and, and a happy new year. So don't forget to subscribe to China Uncovered on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favorite podcast app. And if you enjoyed this show, please be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We look forward to seeing you next year. China Uncovered is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop.